Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome, welcome. This is another uh, Ask, uh, what is it called? Ask Don't Tell? <laughs> no, Ask or Tell Me Anything uh, shows where we have no guests, all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to say, first of all, that we usually open these shows, many of you close students of our particular brand know that we usually open these episodes with William Shatner and Henry Rollins. And we're not doing that today just because I'm bored with it and also because it's the birthday of my dog, Declan, a.k.a. Mr. Horrible. I probably address him as Mr. Horrible more than I address him as Declan, uh, so it just seemed appropriate. The, some of the music on the show today is going to be a problem for John Dankosky, should he decide to tune in, starting with that song. Uh, all right, so what are we going to do? Well, it's kind of up to you. The numbers are 888-720-WNPR. I say numbers, but this the other one is the same number, 888-720-9677. I should also say, you know, I got sick last week. I got sick on I – I had to cancel my show on Friday. Uh, and uh, Declan is three, by the way. Someone just asked. No, he's three years old. So um, I, I didn't have COVID. I got tested for COVID. But it was really weird. I mean, I usually – it's rare that I have to cancel a show because I'm sick. But um, – it's like more that my body was really just tired of me. <laughs> I think my body was trying to purge itself of me. I think that was sort of ultimately what happened. So well, I do have two envelopes here from Mr. Carp. Mr. Carp, for those of you who maybe are new to this format, Mr. Carp is the smartest person that I attended school with, possibly the smartest person on earth. Uh, you couldn't disprove that using my testimony. Uh, so I've known him since the mid-1970s. Still don't feel comfortable addressing him by his first name, nor has he invited me to. Um, and but he does send me envelopes of clips of things that he thinks either might interest me or are important. I, I don't even know which, uh, but they're here. They're sealed. I have not looked at them. Uh, but one option, uh, one option that you would have even as a caller would be to say, "I would like you to open one of them." <laughs> I would like you to open one of the Mr. Carp envelopes. And if you do that, I will say, do, should I open the little one or the big one? The one with the two bunny stamps or just the one bunny stamp? And then you'd have to say that. And then, and this is, this is where there's some exposure. 
some risk of exposure for you, I might ask you to have a conversation with me about whatever, you know, one of the clips that falls out of the envelope. So I'm just saying, typically we wind up not using the Mr. Carp things because there's just other things happen, but they're there. And we now have a format for using them. All right. Now, the other thing, is there anything else? Is there another thing? <laughs> if not, I'm going to plunge into what I want to talk about. Because I, I, on Sunday, I was thinking about, well, I was doing some reading, and, and I was noticing how really a skilled analytical writer can make an argument that completely contravenes the argument made by another skilled analytical writer. And in this case, the uh, arguments I have in mind have to do with COVID-19. So I'll start with David Lenhart. David Lenhart writes for the New York Times. He's kind of a new breed. He's kind of a data-driven, almost opinion writer, you know, like a data a columnist. I don't know. I don't know what he is, uh, but he's something like that. And so he basically, I don't know, now that I've reread the column a few times, it's clear that the column doesn't hold together very well. It's clear that although he's kind of making an argument for one particular point of view, it, I don't know. Anyway, basically what he's saying is, look, COVID is what it is. Uh, it's, it's basically on the wane uh, and we should begin doing things that we feel are safe. <laughs> I'm realizing that this column is so – I was really impressed by how well written it was the first time around. Now that I've read it two or three times, I'm realizing I'm no longer impressed by that. But he in particular, uh, he particular uh, talks to a uh, several COVID experts, but one of them in particular, Robert Wachter, who I'm familiar with. Um, and he actually was the guest host and maybe still is of the um, In the Bubble podcast. Uh, and so he says he's one of the most cautious. He worries about long COVID, yada, yada. Um, and, and he also worries about the downsides of organizing our life around COVID. And he started to do stuff like pay, play poker with people he knows, not wearing a mask. Uh, and uh, he, has, uh, he goes to indoor restaurants, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And he's kind of an expert on infectious diseases and COVID. Uh, and, and and Linhart is basically saying, look, in places where the vaccination rate is really, really high, there really isn't that much danger. People need to get on with whatever they get on with. Now, I should say that right away, the community of infectious disease specialists and epidemiologists and public health experts who inhabit Twitter, a lot of them went after Linhart right away for kind of cherry picking quotes and data. Uh, to construct uh, this argument, which they don't think holds a lot of water. One thing I will say about a David Lenhart piece, if you're reading it online, and he quote, quotes to, quotes and links to somebody else's piece, you should always press on that link because he often has, he has pulled out a quote that bolsters his point of view. But the overall tone of the piece that he has linked to may be very, very different from what he's arguing. That's certainly, I, I think, characterizes his use of some writing by Lily Zhang uh, of The Atlantic, where she and Lenhart agree that one of the things you have to do is goal setting. You have to say, look, we'll, you know, we'll end mask mandates when X happens, when the case rate is such and such, or hospitalizations are such and such for four weeks in a row, or something like that. Uh, otherwise, people just, they don't even know what they're striving for. Now, a lot of the rest of Lily Zhang's piece is not anywhere near as optimistic or let's go let it rip or however you want to 
characterize Lenhart's piece. Anyway, so that's Lenhart, and and he did make a little bit of, st- of a stir over the weekend. You know, pretty well known columns from the New York Times saying, really, the data argues. Let's get going. Um, even though a couple of ways, if you read the column carefully, in a couple of ways he goes, eh, one problem is the cases are up a little bit right now. <laughs> yeah, that could be a problem. But his his other argument is, and I think he relies on Lily Zhang for this too, you have to decide what you're trying to do. Are you trying to get the case rate down? Are you trying to get hospitalizations down? Are you trying to get deaths down? Uh, it, you know, The case rate may not be a good thing to look at anymore because vaccinated people can test positive for COVID um, and and yet not really be in in terrible danger, although that's not exclusively true. Uh, So maybe we shouldn't be looking at the case rate. Okay. Meanwhile, Eric Topol, who is a scientist, uh, a researcher, somebody I've actually repeatedly tried to get on this show with no no success, uh, but a pretty influential writer on this stuff. Um, He wrote in The Guardian, and there's some other stuff that goes with this, that you know, the pattern has been stuff happens in Europe and then it comes here. You know, in terms of disease starting in Europe and coming here, you go back at least to Columbus, right? Uh, but in particular in the COVID-19 era, era, it seems as though Europe is something of a prequel to what happens uh, to, in the U.S. eventually. And so waves there come here. And if that's the case again, well, I mean, Europe is having a very serious siege in a lot of Central European areas like Germany and Belgium. Uh, Spain and Portugal are actually in pretty good shape. They have among the higher vaccination rates. But Tobel goes in through through a pretty detailed analysis, talks about how Belgium, and this worries me because uh, super spy Carmen Baskoff is currently in Belgium, although not, I don't think, using the name Carmen Baskoff anymore. Uh, but uh, in Belgium, you know, the, the numbers are going up. Uh, they've got a 74%, I think, total vaccination rate. And Tobol says looking at the numbers, it it is persuasively – I can't – something be persuasively suggested? Well, anyway, looking at the numbers, it appears that 74% is not an adequate vaccination rate uh, in order to, you know, completely hold surges down. So Tobol's argument is you should probably assume – that we're going to get something like this, you know, maybe after Thanksgiving, maybe after Christmas, somewhere in there, we're, we're going to get this. Uh, Daniel Griffin from ProHealth is one of the experts that I pay a lot of attention to. He, uh, speaking on This Week in Virology over the weekend, said essentially the same thing. What he said was, this, what we've got right now, is probably as good as it's going to get uh, and is going to get worse uh, in in the next window, the kind of winter window of the disease. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, in addition to that, the Wall Street Journal, far from being an alarmist publication, uh, is saying basically, well, we were already starting to have this problem. Uh, it's already here uh, in um, areas of the Midwest, uh, in areas uh, of the Midwest, Southwest. I was scrolling to find this thing. That's why I was stuttering there. Uh, COVID-19 cases are climbing in places like the upper Midwest, Southwest, and parts of the Northeast, uh, hindering the nation's progress in ending a surge uh, triggered by by Delta. Uh, Nationally, the seven-day average of new cases appears to be edging back up after hovering just above 70,000 for several weeks. Uh, And that's according to Johns Hopkins data, which is some of the gold standard stuff that we use. Uh, So he says, while the Southeast cools off from its summer surge, 
That's like Florida where everybody was dying for a long time. Uh, but they're in better shape right now. The southeast is cooling off. Other regions are under pressure. Uh, and colder weather brings people back indoors. The uh, uh, Wall Street Journal quotes Jan Malcolm, commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Health. Uh, right now, we find ourselves in a truly alarming spike in cases. So, and I'm I'm sorry in a way to bring this stuff up, and we don't have to talk about it. I'm just this is what's on my mind right now. But you can call eight 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 seven two zero WNPR eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven and bring up whatever it is that you want to talk about. Um, but I think what's, one of the things that's happened is we really have hit a point where people are dealing with COVID-19 not really necessarily based on the kind of evidence that ordinarily might guide us. Um, they're basing their COVID-19 behaviors more on how tired they are of the whole topic. And, and I mean, everybody's really tired of the topic. And, and I, I, you know, for many, many, many months, uh, when Betsy Kaplan was senior producer here, she and I did shows just about every Monday where at least part of the show was talking to somebody, not Eric Topol because we couldn't get him, but talking to somebody, you know, some very well-respected epidemiologist, virologist, uh, immunologist, um, about this and trying to understand it better from a scientific and public health perspective. So, um, and lately, I not only have not been doing those shows, but I've become less and less of a consumer of that kind of information because we all just get so tired of it. Um, but getting tired of it and having it be over is, those are two different things. And reading Lenhart's piece, even the first time through, I thought, you know, for a data guy, I mean, he's talking about a curve which has undulated. You know, I mean, that's what it's done. It hasn't moved in a steady, unbroken arc. It's tended to go up and down, up and down, up and down. So the idea that he would suddenly be acting as though we're never going to go up again or that it weren't going to go up again really soon seems more like wishful New York Times thinking than, you know, really sturdy analysis. But I'm also just aware of – because these were two pretty prestigious writers, I was thinking this is also kind of symbolic of the um, – of the – what's the word? Epistemological – the epistemic, let's just say. Epistemic crisis we're having in America too. How do you know what to believe? Uh, how do you process information? Uh, you know, where do you get your information? How do you decide to trust it? Because, you know, David Linhart and the New York Times are, you know, theoretically pretty trustworthy sources. But I would say in general that, you know, I wouldn't trust what I saw from Lenhart this weekend. And if that's the New York Times' company line, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that it wasn't edited a little bit differently. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that some editor didn't say, look, David, you know, you yourself are acknowledging that cases are rising. How can the pandemic be over when cases are rising? We understand people aren't getting quite as sick. Uh, we understand that people aren't dying at the same rate. But they are getting sick and they are dying. And we have hospitals that are, uh, you know, that have been through the wars. Uh, we have hospitals. I Believe me, I think this is one of the hidden – it's not very well hidden, but one of the hidden-ish uh, aspects of this is that our, not only did our hospitals get overwhelmed at times, uh, but what happened was there was such a high rate of burnout among doctors, nurses, and other hospital workers that I don't think they're as well-staffed as they used to be. Uh, and as a result, they are less ready to handle each new surge. Every time there's a new surge, 
if it gets to a hospital, that hospital probably is smarter about COVID than it ever was before and has more tools to deal with COVID than it ever has before. Those are the good things, but also probably isn't as well staffed. The people who are there are really, really tired. Um, some of the people who used to be there aren't there anymore because they got so tired they left. Uh, so, I mean, to get cavalier about it, I think, would be kind of a mistake. All right. So anyway, I've been babbling away. Uh, our number, 888-720-WNPR or 888-720-9677. These are the same number. Um, all right. Here's Dan from Middletown. Hi, Dan. You're the first caller. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. So I guess I just kind of wanted to throw my hat into the kind of, you know, mid to post COVID kind of ring. Um, I'm 27 or 28. I don't even know anymore. My wife's 28. Um, <laughs> that's the COVID fog that's back. doing that. <laughs> well, once she turns a new age, I kind of forget how old I am because I'm three months behind her. Um, but basically we've both, you know, we've been double vaccinated since we're probably going to get our boosters as soon as it seems we're eligible to. So I think like January for us. Um, but other than that, the pandemic's been pretty much over for us personally, while we still kind of hear all the kind of daily delusion kind of torrents of things. But, you know, like if you're in a really tight kind of indoor space, you want a mask on. But other than that, for us, I guess it's there's a pretty low risk of getting it, pretty risk of passing it. And it's just kind of been normal life for quite a while. So. I, I get that we need to really keep the messaging focused so that the people who aren't vaccinated get vaccinated. But in the meantime, we should really be thinking more about how life's kind of more normal for the lower risk, fully vaccinated people. I mean, I think that's not an unreasonable position. Um, I mean, what I would say is, you know, in a way, we are Europe, maybe stupider and less architecturally attractive. But we are Europe in the sense that we are a, a large uh, nation with a lot of different kind of sub-nations within it, you know? So uh, here in Connecticut, um, yeah, you probably can adopt that attitude pretty safely. Vaccination rate's really high. Um, you're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. Uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, I'm a little bit more careful than you are because I, I've got some immunocompromised people very, very close to me in my life. So uh, I don't want to bring anything home with me. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that's like a crazy thing that you're saying at all. I think it would be a little crazier if you lived someplace else uh, in the U.S. I mean, there are a lot of places in the U.S. where the vaccination rate isn't that high. They don't have the disease under control. Uh, if you or your wife, God forbid, were to get a breakthrough case that required a little bit of extra attention, you know, most vaccinated people don't get as sick, but it's not true that vaccinated people never have urgent symptoms. But if you needed to go to the ER or something like that, you know, then you're starting to look at something that's just a little less predictable. And as I say, I don't think a lot of our medical facilities are in as good shape as they as they were. I mean, ultimately, yeah, maybe you'd be also eligible for monoclonals or uh, or the new Pfizer treatment pill, the therapeutic pill, you know, when it gets into wider circulation. But yeah, I think here in Connecticut, that's not a crazy attitude. There, I think, you know, if you live, well, if you apparently, if you lived in Minnesota right now, you might want to rethink that. Um, but, you know, to, to what I was saying before, that's, we're a big country, so there probably isn't one American truth, despite what you might hear elsewhere. Oh, it's so true. I know I, I had to go to Miami for a weekend earlier in the summer, and that, it was a, you know, keep your mask on the whole time, and then stay by yourself for a week once you get back to make sure you're not passing anything along kind of experience. 
But, that's, uh, that's a good attitude towards Miami, Miami, even if there's not a pandemic. <laughs> Absolutely. But it has been interesting seeing the shift from, you know, people talking about, you know, starting to lift restrictions for kind of vaccinated life and you know, to kind of live with the virus. That's kind of gotten because it isn't really that safe earlier on, but we do need to kind of start shifting that way. And it's interesting to see the discussion start to change from being radical to being, well, we are going to be living with this kind of indefinitely. And Things need to go on. Yeah, I mean, I think that that statement's very true. We are going to be living for this, living with this indefinitely, and it's it's you know people are going to have to make particular choices. Either let it kind of fade into the background and become like the flu, which you don't lie awake at night worrying about, or typically have not, you know, or say, ah, we're yeah, we're not in, we're not in that version of Kansas anymore. We're in a different version of Kansas. I have to be a, a little or a lot more vigilant. All right, thanks for that call, Dan. It was a great call. Oh, this is going to make uh, Jonathan McPants. The producer of this episode very happy because he wants us. So, well, anyway, let's just see what's going to happen here. All right, here's <laughs> here's Peter from from Stanford. Hi, Peter. Hi, Colin. Um, first, I I just uh, put your the, the call in number on my cell phone, so I want you to know that I put it on my speed dial. Thing, oh, so. we're on speed dial. That's uh, big. That's big. Oh yeah. Uh, why don't you open up the small envelope? The small envelope, the one with only one bunny stamp. envelope. Okay, it's a repurposed Mayo Clinic envelope. Mr. Carp does not like to buy new envelopes. All it is a time. check for $17 million is in here. No, actually, that's not what it is. Oh, there's a lot of clips. So there's a lot of clips. So we'll just pick like, maybe the biggest one. He underlines a lot, too. Okay, so uh, but here's... But a lot of paper clips? No, just cl- clippings, newspaper clippings. Oh, okay, um, there's book reviews. There's uh, a lot of book reviews here. Well, let's go. The first one is about American transcendentalism. Uh, and it's okay. a, re, a oh. New York, it looks like a, maybe a Wall Street Journal book review about the transcendentalists uh, and their world. It begins, it is a remarkable fact that American transcendentalism's two best-known authors, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, lived within walking distance in the same small village of 2,000 souls, like the Renaissance London of Shakespeare and Marlowe, or the mid-20th century Liverpool of Lennon and McCartney. Uh, Antebellum Concord Mass was a surprising hub of genius, a confluence of talent that uh, defies uh, easy explanation. So, Peter... First of all, those were the days. Those, those were the days. days. Yeah. Well, those sort of were the days. And 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 I first of all I want to say that this is a subject close to my heart in certain ways. Uh, I don't know whether Mr. Carp would have necessarily known that, but he he knows many things, so he might have. So a couple of things about this. I've always been fascinated by that, by by that whole idea of like Princeton when. Einstein and Neumann uh, and Gödel and like all those people were kind of there all at the same time. Or Vienna where, I don't know, I mean I, off the top of my head I can't name everybody, but there certainly would have been a period of time when you could walk into a coffee shop uh, in Vienna and see Freud. Oh, and yeah. and a, there a book about that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, there was a- yeah, and I love that. I love the idea that there are certain moments where just, I mean, you know, New York City is kind of like that all the time. And Paris is kind of arguably like yeah. that all the time. Although you can find moments... July 1776 in yeah. the U.S. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can find moments in Paris, you know, probably the age of Voltaire. Paris, the 1920s, yes. Yeah, or the 1920s with the expats, but I would even go back to the age of Voltaire and you know, the number of people who are who are commenting back and forth on uh, on each other's work. It's really like an exciting idea. So that's exciting. I, and I don't really know what else to say about it except that I sort of wonder in, here in the digital age if that's another thing that digital culture will effectively destroy, which is well, the sense of... Uh, know, is the internet a, a caricature of that or... Um 
I, I <laughs> a grotesque caricature of that. No, I just feel like in, you know, I don't know. I just read a piece uh, in the Times, I think, this weekend about how people who have, you know, complicated and interesting tech-driven jobs, a lot of them are moving to these little tiny seacoast villages in like Newfoundland because they can live anywhere and they like to, they want, they like nature, they like live by the water and now they're, you know, they're selling coffee-flavored kombucha or something. These poor people yeah. who live in Newfoundland who had a real sense of place there where, you know, you could only get six things and they all tasted like cod. Uh, you know, now <laughs> yeah. it's now now that's completely destroyed and, and everybody's you know, who wants to go there can be there because they can work from anywhere because the pandemic taught them that it's not that the Internet is less important. It's more all-encompassing because, you know, you, you yeah. can – so. I just wonder if, you know, I mean, Paris is always going to be Paris. New York's always going to be New York. But in terms of these those little kind of micro spots, you know, where you get a lot of people together in one place. Well, one possibility is that there'll be this cross-disciplinary flowering in some little, you know. Oh, isn't, isn't that sort of the idea of, of uh, used to be college? Um Liberal arts studies at one time. Uh, yeah, to a certain degree. Sort of, sort of uh, a manufactured thing that they that they you know experiment. You know that they was the idea. You know, right. When, so uh, McPants yeah. is pointing out that the publishers for our Strauss and Drew sent us this book, and that it's eight hundred and thirty six pages long. But um, okay, so I have a question: How many books do you get a month, uh, Colin, uh, to, to review? I know I've heard of you know. You, the radio stations or hosts get like hundreds of books a month or, or, or to review, you know, from it's famous a, authors and non-famous authors. It's a little bit complicated now because because we're, I mean, I'm here in the... Or there's e-books. Yeah. I'm also, like, I'm here in the Connecticut Public Building right now, and McPants is making one of his periodic appearances here. But, you know, it used to be that our newsroom, like, books would kind of pour into the newsroom to very, and they would be sent to various producers and hosts and stuff like that. And a lot of times they'd all be flung together in piles on desks, and we'd be looking around at them, going, pulling something out and go, let's, let's look at this one. But the truth is... I don't know how many books we get. Um, I, I know that. And who's on tour and, you know, yeah, I mean, ready. It, it, sometimes a book is more like a reason why you can get somebody. Like we've been trying to get Ross Douthat, the somewhat conservative columnist for The New York Times and Connecticut resident now and grew up in New Haven and was in a Gilbert and Sullivan play with Lauren Ambrose. Uh, we've been trying to get Ross Douthat for a really long time, and we can never get him, except he's got a book out right now about having Lyme disease. So guess what? We're oh. going to do a show uh, about with Ross Douthat. So I don't know. Stuff that comes over the transom, wow. mostly, we don't do much with. Um, and apparently, if we get an 836-page uh, book about transcendentalism, we don't even tell each other, uh, which is also understandable. <laughs> but um, I want to say one last thing about transcendentalism, which is, for to me, for a really long time, Transcendentalism, to whatever degree all those people can be knocked into the same cocked hat, you know, it really was the defining intellectual movement of America for, I don't know, 70, I don't know, I, I started college in 1972. You were still like, you know, you kind of had to wrestle if you were going to look at the liberal arts and the humanities in America. Yeah, I mean, there was no – you couldn't hopscotch over this stuff. You, <laughs> you, you, you know, it was still so latently powerful that you either had to decide to let it inform your thinking or you had to come up with a compelling reason to reject it. So I, I'm down with transcendentalism still. I've switched. I used to be dating Thoreau. Now I date Emerson. 
Uh, that's the big difference. Well, Peter, thanks for getting one of the envelopes open. We have to take a break right now. Our number, 888-720-WNPR. The Mr. Carp, the small envelope has been opened. We may be going back to other things, or it could be a Pandora's box. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. For everyone who only just arrived, a quick synopsis if you came late and missed the Emotion, and you wonder what was all that. Here's the recap. Sound of gathering and shuffling of notes. I assure you there's a very simple explanation. If you'd only be patient. Okay, you're asking how container ships were found. All right. I told I mean, really, now the music on this show has become a real problem for John Dankosky, should he listen to this show at any point. Don't, you know, if you know him, just encourage him not to listen to the show. It'll upset him. Um, all right. So we're going to go to the phones here, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Here's uh, Dave from Cleveland, Ohio, one of our uh, favorite uh, listening areas. Hi, Dave. <laughs> How are you doing? Excellent. Uh, appreciate you taking my call. I called last week, and I'm not going to become your best pen pal. I just, when you said the word Midwest, as I was listening earlier and talk about COVID, I just couldn't. Uh, I just wanted to try to convey a little bit about kind of the hopelessness of dealing with COVID, at least in our part of the Midwest. When, you know, my wife and I, were pl- I'm from Connecticut. We're, we're desperately planning and trying to move back there in the near future. But, you know, when you look at Connecticut and it's got 1.5 to 3, you know, uh, the COVID infection rate, and out here it's 15, 18, um, there's there's a lot of reasons why that would be, I suppose. But we see people here doing the same thing you were just talking about with an earlier caller about how people are going around on masks and stuff. And, you know, you can do that in Connecticut. Out here, 
you have people who, who just the intense brain drain in this state over the last 10, 20 years. You have people who just don't know or care, and they just mingle. They are two feet apart. There are no, almost no masks. You know, as soon as people had a little ray of light in about June of this year, when, you, okay, we can relax a little, that was like, forget about it. Open season, we're going back to the way we always lived. And it's looking like that could have just disastrous consequences as things start to, you know, as you as you mentioned, start to uh, to get worse in the cold weather. Yeah. You're in Cuyahoga County, right? That's where you guys are? Uh, actually, Lake County, just I say Cleveland because it's, everyone knows where it is, but uh, Lake County, just one east of okay. there along the lakeshore. Because I'm looking at the Cuyahoga numbers, and they're not great. Um, no. And Lake is in a little bit better shape. Yeah, a little bit better shape. Uh, Surge maybe not quite as sharp edge there yet. Yeah, I, you know, look, I mean, I think what's happened, though, is we've reached the point where it's almost impossible to be the kindergarten teacher anymore. You know, I mean, everybody in the kindergarten is either deciding to drink their own juice and not hit anybody else in the head with a block or to do the opposite, you know, and it's it's really – increasingly difficult. And I feel for people who are cautious, smart people like you who are in an area that is not characterized by that behavior because to be in the minority, that's the nice thing about Connecticut, as you were suggesting, is you can walk around with a mask almost anywhere and you won't be the only person wearing a mask. Um, Whereas I think it it gets more difficult when you're almost kind of identifying yourself as a certain kind of person because you're taking precautions, which I think is kind of what you're saying too. Absolutely. And, you know, people always say, well, it's become very Trumpy here and, you know, people are anti-Fauci and all of that is true. But what I really see is more at the at the root of it is people have just become so weak minded. Um, they just don't have the mental strength to 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 do what my wife and I have done, which is like basically not see anybody since a year and a half ago. People are not willing to do that anymore. And and that that's the most distressing part because I'm I'm pretty close to you in age. Our parents' generation, I think whatever their faults, would have responded better to this situation. You know, they lived through the war, they sacrificed. Nothing like that goes on here. Yes. And people are, are very, very unwilling. It's the difference between um freedom and individualism. People think individualism is the same thing as freedom. It's not. It's not. All right. So I want to go to a couple of women callers. But John from Hartford, don't hang up because I'm I'm eager, I think, to talk to you about what you want to talk about. But here's Donna in West Springfield. Hi, Donna. You're with us. Hi. Um, I want to preface this by saying I am not a statistician, mm-hmm. but I am somewhat statistically aware. And generally in life when we're dealing with averages, Almost everything in nature conforms to a normal distribution. You know, you've seen the curves, whether they're talking about intelligence or whatever. And so the layperson, when talking about averages, has a good gut feeling for what an average means. But when we're talking about vaccinations and infection rates, you don't really have a normal distribution. You have what a statistician would call a bimodal distribution where you've got heavy groupings of either vaccinated, like, you know, you're talking Cuyahoga County has heavy groupings of unvaccinated and Connecticut has heavy groupings of vaccinated. And those distributions do not follow the same patterns. And, 
you know, layperson's gut says, you know, average tells me this thing, but you've really got a bimodal distribution which acts very differently, whether you've got it for political reasons as in the United States or whether you have it for economic reasons as you're looking across the the international borders. Um, And when you have patches like that, the gut sense people have of what an average represents is just plain old incorrect. Yeah, and, and you know, I think good analysts uh, try as much as possible uh, to to get that right and to have what they write reflect that. Um, the problem is yeah, that... So the, the infectious diseases experts know. Yeah. But yeah. the layperson who's saying, what is going on in my county or my city doesn't have the same sense. Right. And I would say even the smartest people, you know, it's hard not to lapse into that. I mean, for example, um, I don't have the this right in front of me, but my my recollection is that in the Eric Topol piece, and I have massive respect for Eric Topol. At one point he says, look, you know, Belgium has th- this kind of surge going on. They've got a 74% total vaccination rate. That's very suggestive of the idea that, that that's 74 is not enough. And then at another point, he says the U.S. total vaccination rate, I think he said was 58 percent. That's a little lower than what I thought it was right now. But but see, I think that's a false comparison because, you know, Connecticut is better than Belgium, you know, but Cleveland might be worse than Belgium. So to your point, yeah, it is at minimum, uh, you know, a bimodal model and probably a multimodal model where you really do have to look at where you live. And, and, and Linhart says that at a certain point in his piece that, you know, if you live in a pretty, you know, pretty actively vaccinated, say, urban area that you have some confidence about, it's different from living someplace where, you know, you probably ought to be scared. All right. So um, we're going to just keep going here. But thanks very much for that call, Donna. Uh, here's Amanda and Meriden. Hi, Amanda. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. I, I like that you have the Colin Colin show. I know. Sometimes it confuses me, too. Um, so, I, like a week and a half ago, you had a show about ABBA, mm-hmm. and none of you guys liked um, the the Christmas song, but I actually liked it. <laughs> oh, that whoa, that was that weird. First of all, we should just say for people who you know who are just kind of tuning into this uh, that. ABBA went 40 years without releasing a new album. Uh, and then a few Fridays ago, two Fridays ago, they did release a new album. And it did include this prissy, mincing, weird little Christmas song, which you happen to like, which is not to cast asparagus on you, obviously. Well, I, I'll tell you why I like it. Because the tune is um, the tune of Don Anobi's Pachem. Ah. Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't pick that up. So that's we, good on you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that I was like, I'm listening to the song, and I was like, I know that tune. And I was like, okay, that's, that's the tune that it is. Yeah. It's, well, um, anyway, the song's got little things. And, um, and I, you know, if she sang it differently, I would probably like it better. But that's an interesting little piece of musical intelligence that you have shared. So thank you so much for that, Amanda. I'm, and I'm sorry for not prolonging this, but I've already botched the clock really badly. <laughs> the show's kind of running out of time, as usual, uh, way, way too fast. But here's John in Hartford. Hi, John. Hi, John. Hi, Colin. Colin, love you, love your show. Listen to you since you came on the air, when you came over from commercial radio. Um, I love to hear you talk about vaccines and viruses. I love you doing the call-in show. 
So I'm wondering, what's going on with this whole brand, rebranding thing? Um, are you having problem with the with the demographics of your listeners? Are we too old? Or, <laughs> uh, what's going on? Um, well, first of all, it's confusing. We have um, a herd of cattle uh, that we graze, and they're very similar to the branding on that. They're very similar to one of the nearby ranches. So that's the only thing we're really doing right now. No, I mean, so first of all, that's what you ask is a really good question. Like, would we be rebranding because of uh, demographics or to grow our listener? Anytime that comes up in any meeting with anybody in this company, I say, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're not going to think about it that way. Uh, I, I promise you that I will be, you know, the last legionnaire in the fort about that. Uh, I, that's not how we're thinking. No, I'll tell you, actually, I had an exchange with another listener to, today who was emailing me about this, and he was sort of worried about the rebranding and then, you know, kind of wishing we weren't doing it. I wasn't too sure about what it was. And then but at another point, he said, I think it was his niece. It was somebody in his family who's really – I said, look, we've got to get rid of our logo. You know, our logo is – for want of a better word, it's kind of an ugly logo. It was like kind of ugly the first day we used it. It's 12 years old now. Um, the person who did it, who's somebody whose work uh, I admire a lot and who's uh, I enjoyed working with all those many years ago, but really he spent about 20 minutes on it, I think. So <laughs> we've kept it for 12 years. And so this guy says, well, if that's – my niece is really good at this. So what's your favorite – what are your favorite colors – and what's the most important – what are the things that have to be there, have to somehow or other be present in your logo? And this is the guy who was kind of object, objecting to or worried about the rebranding. And I haven't had a chance to write, write back to him yet. But my thought was, well, that's exactly what you do when you rebrand. You say, what is it, what's the story we need to tell about ourselves? And are we telling that story? Uh, and, and as long as we're trying to figure out what the story we need to tell ourselves, it, it's also the question of, are we doing shows that conform, that map pretty closely onto what we think the story of ourselves is that we should be telling to our listeners. That's like, to me, the only interesting part about this. Most of what goes on in rebranding is a lot of noise, you know, but that whole fundamental question, like what, what the hell is this show, you know, and, and are we telling people what we, th the, the truth, the true thing that we think the show is, and then are we doing a show that conforms to those suppositions? To me, those are kind of interesting questions. The demographic stuff, I promise you, uh, I, I will never let it color my thoughts about anything that I do. Isn't, isn't demographics important? Isn't it, you know, you know, knowing what your listeners are attracted to and what turns them off, isn't that important? Not to me, no. Um, <laughs> No, it isn't. I mean, really, and if you, you went to one of our staff meetings, you'd hear me say this. Or when we were interviewing for the senior producer job that Lily Tyson now has, I said this to a number of applicants. I said, look, the only thing I the, really essentially the only thing I want to talk about is how can we do really great shows that we like? You know, I mean, we're doing a show about Occam's Razor this week. You know, I mean, nobody in their right mind would do a show about Occam's Razor, which is why we're doing a show about Occam's Razor, because we're not in our right minds. And, and I just don't care. <laughs> I mean, I don't care about the demographics or whether like people 25 to 54 are going to like a show about Occam's Razor. Footnote, they're probably not going to like that. Or maybe I, we can do a show where I'll talk them into thinking that this is a really interesting topic that has some some currency to it, you know, that is really – if we because one of our other mottos here is if we do our job the right way and if we do the kind of shows that we think that we are capable of doing, we can make anything interesting. 
So it has to start with us being interested in it. But, you know, believe me, if I were worried about ratings or demographics or anything like that, John, I sure as hell wouldn't be doing an episode about Occam's Razor in the middle of this week. And I am doing that. All right. We have to take a break. We'll come back. We'll have a little bit of time on the other side. All right, we're back very quickly. Thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer today and ideally every day. Uh, and up here screening calls and, and helping to produce this show is Jonathan McPants. Uh, and, and, yeah, I want to get back to the phones ASAP. Let's see. This person, Philip, has been waiting a while. So let's get to him. Philip in Middletown. Hi, you're on the air. How's it going, Colin? Okay. Um, I've been listening to your show, uh, you know, You've been talking about COVID numbers, cases, and everything, and everything that's associated with living during this pandemic. And it makes me want to look at the positives that came out of these, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying times. And the Middletown Press uh, has a great example of a huge positive that's coming out uh, of this whole pandemic. And during the pandemic, I think we became intimately aware of the waste that we create and all the single-use products that we use. And the Middletown Press is showcasing a new gem to our neighborhood, and I think it's called Reboot Eco. And it's a refill station. It's a zero-waste shop, um, and it's this, I guess, new jewel that's going to adorn the riverfront, um, this great new shop, and introducing a new way of life. So if I was a part of the nose, I would say this would be the thing I want to pr- promote this week. That's for sure. It, it sounds great. I mean, it sounds – so many of us – I don't know about everybody else, but like we have stuff in our house – that is sitting in our house that we don't want and we're never going to use, but we don't know what to do with it. You know, it's just sitting in our house because we need to dispose of it responsibly. Uh, but also, like, yeah, you know, ideally, if it's zero waste, you should be able to take your jug of, you know, arm and hammer liquid clothing detergent, laundry detergent, and like and fill, fill it up. Fill it up. Yeah. I mean, because we, we now know. Recycling, particularly recycling of plastics, you're basically filling up neighborhoods in Indonesia with stuff that really can't right. can't be you know truly recycled. So yeah, zero waste, fill it up. Uh, I would say uh, another triumph for Florsheimism. Florsheimism, uh, I believe, is one of the most exciting and viable political philosophies in America today. So uh, way to go, all of you Florsheimists out there. All right, so ah, mm, mm. I'm going to go with Mike. I'm going to go with Mike. I could go with. Chris, because she calls up a lot, but I'm going to go with Mike because uh, it's a different topic. Uh, hi, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Colin. How you doing? Good. So, listen, before I, I, I get to my topic, which is very brief, uh, I just have to ask you this question. You do this promo uh, where you play a call-in uh, segment that you did with some guy, and you ask him, I have a question. Are you micro-dosing mushrooms at this moment? Yeah. Okay. And I can never understand what the guy's answer is. What does he say? I think he says, so you laugh hysterically. I think he says, no, it's Monday uh, or something like that. I think that's what he says. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, well, what I want to uh, ask you is if you are as outraged, well, outrage maybe is too strong a word, but a Yukon spending a million and a half a year, at least is the number that I heard for five years for this ex uh, NFL coach, Jim Mora to take over the program, a program which, in my opinion, they should cancel because it's pathetic and I can't 
see how this guy's going to make a difference. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I guess you're talking to somebody who, at the risk of sounding self-congratulatory, I'm kind of exhausted from having been right for so long, but at the time of the the upgrade to Div 1, I I wrote and said on the radio, this is not going to work. At the time of spending $90 million or more, $93 million, I think, at the time uh, to, you know, create the Rensselaer facility, uh, I said, you know, you're not, it's not going to be a multi-use facility the way you think it is in the football program. And, you know, the argument always was, no, you got to have it. And, you know, I mean, these programs rarely pay for themselves, let alone spin off a profit. Despite what you hear, uh, they're not profitable uh, Profitable programs or not financially, uh, fiscally helpful to the to the universities that house them. Uh, except that, oh, there's intangibles. There's school spirit. There are people who won't come – to a college that doesn't have Division One football. Well, first of all, do you want students whose whose deal breaker is that they have to go to a school with Division One football? What kind of student is that? Uh, but meanwhile, yes, this it's expensive. I mean, even if the program were reasonably successful, even if it were a little bit more like it was in some of the early years where they got bowl bids, you know, and, and which by the way cost money. When we went to, to the Tostitos uh, uh, Bowl, uh, when UConn went to the Tostitos Bowl. Uh, it actually cost more money to the university. Being successful was not a way of getting revenue. That didn't wash out in the in the favor of the university. So yeah, so we went through Randy Edsel twice now. Uh, we went through his nepotistic behavior with his son, and now we're going to pay Jim Mora a lot of money. And no, I don't think it's a good idea. And and I, it's so it's been not a good idea for so long that I can't believe. <laughs> I mean, it's now kind of the sunk cost thing. You know, there's just nobody who really quite has the energy and guts, certainly not on the UConn Board of Trustees, to say, we got to get out of this. This is just going nowhere. We are spinning our wheels uh, into a deeper and deeper rut here. So, yeah, we'll pay this guy a, a million five, and, and maybe it'll work out. But if it doesn't, that won't prevent them from pouring more money into this program. This is just a, a long-term relationship that we'll never get out of. All right. Thanks for everybody who called up with a very diverse set of topics, which we like. And thanks to you for everything else. And thanks to McPants and to Kat. has been disconnected.